Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. still hate it. I hate it. Anyway, I'm so tired. Jess is having, I feel like I haven't started this, like any of these episodes in a while without saying Jess is having a breakdown. (laughs) Jess is having another breakdown. I'm not having a breakdown. I'm just overworked and I haven't slept. Oh, I have slept, but not enough. And I'm just tired. My feet hurt. Anyway. Welcome to the podcast, Murder and Land of Oz, where we don't sit and complain about our fucking lives all the time. Um, it's not my go tonight. Hooray! It's my go. Thank fuck for that. Thank you, Jesus, for that. So, Ellen. Um, Jess, do you like doing this show? Yeah, I fucking love this so much. I do. I'm just losing the will to live at the moment. Right. But anyway, it's Sunday night. We're recording this on a Sunday night. I've got Coke, no sugar. I got Ellen. I got Zane. I got Fifi, the podcast cat. She'll be right. We're all going to get through this together. Yeah, we're well, all going because you got a fucking doozy tonight. Yes, it's 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 gross. It's a rough one. So, okay, first off, let's get into why you picked this one. Well, P- Zane actually picked this one. Um, this was Zane's idea. This right. today we are covering uh, Doctor Death. So, um, Doctor Death is a, if you're a true crime podcast fan, you've probably heard of the podcast called Dr. Death, which talks about the murders of a doctor named Dr. Christopher Dunst, who was an American surgeon who like intentionally killed 30 odd of his patients. Um, He described himself as a motherfucking cold-blooded killer. He said the words, I am a motherfucking cold-blooded killer. In an email to his assistant. Are you fucked? Yeah, he was fucked. He was big time fucked. Anyway, um... So the podcast was made, it was made by the people who made Dirty John, which is another very popular podcast. And it was presented by an award-winning health and science journalist named Laura Beale. Um, And it's just been like a smash hit. Uh, And Zane was like, hey, why don't we shamelessly cash in on the popularity of another podcast by talking about the Australian Dr. Death? Because we had a Dr. Death as well. We did. Um, So our Dr. Death didn't intentionally kill anybody but he was extremely negligent he was an extremely incompetent surgeon and his bad surgery practices basically caused the death of an it's unconfirmed how many patients died because they were going to die anyway and like how many died because of him being shit right so um fair warning this episode includes graphic descriptions of medical procedures oh yay uh if like me that shit makes you want to (laughs) faint 
this episode may not be for you. We need that on a, we need that on a t-shirt. This if shit like, makes me faint. If you like me and this shit makes you faint. Seriously. I was like, yeah, I'll do it, Zane. And then I spent the entire time researching going, oh, that's gross. Oh, that's so gross. But now I'm incredibly tough and I think I could probably be a doctor. Okay. <laughs> All righty. So we're heading back up north to Queensland to the city of Bundaberg. So Bundaberg is a small city about 300 kilometres north of Brisbane with a population of around 70,000. Bundy's main and frankly only claim to fame is that it is the home of Bundaberg Rum. And also Jack McGovern is from there. Cool. What a great story. Good for him. <laughs> and Zane. Zane is from Bundaberg. Whoa. Fun murder on the land of Oz fact. Zane is from Bundaberg. Whoa. The, the, the home of Bundy Rum right. and Zane. They have two claims to fame. Amazing. <laughs> um, Bundaberg has a subtropical climate similar to Brisbane. Hot and rainy in summer. Hot and not rainy in winter. <laughs> it is kind of like, it's almost like the start of northern Queensland, even though it's still in the southeast. It's kind of like where north Queensland begins. Um, so the public ho- hospital in Bundaberg is known as Bundaberg Base Hospital. A base hospital is essentially like a large hospital in a regional area that serves as the main hospital for like a greater, A shit ton of area. Re- yeah, a shit ton of area. Um So Bundaberg Hospital is fairly well kitted out as a level four capability hospital, providing moderate risk inpatient facilities and ambulatory care services. It has a medical staff on site 24 hours a day, an intensive care unit, cardiac unit, and some specialist diagnostic services. But patients are often transferred to the Princess Alexandra or Royal Brisbane hospitals down in the big smoke for serious operations and other medical issues that the base is unable to handle. The Bundaberg Base Hospital has an annual budget of around $56 million a year and as a public hospital is governed by Queensland Health. So enter Dr. Jayant Patel. Dr. Patel was born on April 10th, 1950 in Jamnagar, India. He studied surgery at the MP Shah College at um, Saurashtra University where he obtained a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery in 1973, which he topped off with a Master's in Surgery in 1976. In 1977, he moved to the United States where he undertook a surgical residency program at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. His first brush with trouble came in 1984 where Buffalo, New York health officials cited Patel for failing to examine patients before surgery. What? So patients would be like coming on in saying like, oh, I need, I don't know, my gallbladder removed. And Dr. Patel was like, yeah, mm, I'll do take it. Take a kidney from that. Mm. He, he essentially like, so obviously before you undergo surgery, the, the surgeon is supposed to come in and examine you and make sure you don't have any other medical health issues and whether or not it's like safe to proceed with surgery. But Dr. Patel wasn't doing that. He was writing stuff in their charts pretending that he had gone and examined the patient, but he actually hadn't. So he was found of... Um, found guilty of professional misconduct by the board, fined $5,000 and was placed on three years clinical probation. But it didn't really have too much impact on his career. He was still published in journals. He contributed to a medical textbook and he ran the residency program at the hospital where he worked. So like he was in charge of like teaching. He was teaching other students how to become surgeons. He was like, fuck it. Like, don't even worry about it. Don't even need to examine him. Just go on in there. What's the difference between a kidney and a liver? I don't know. (laughs) So in 1989, he left New York and began working at the Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Portland, Oregon, 
where he worked as a general surgeon for a number of years. So a general surgeon, I was like, it's a surgeon that meat does everything. It's not. Um, it's a surgeon who specializes in the area of the abdominal contents, including the esophagus, stomach, bowel, colon, liver, pancreas, gallbladder, and appendix, as well as performing procedures such as gastroscopies and colonoscopies. Um, so Patel worked at Kaiser Permanente for a number of years uh, and he was kind of like sometimes everybody was like, whoa, this guy is an amazing amazing surgeon and he actually won an award and was named the Distinguished Physician of the Year in 1995. Boo. But he was also part of a string of problem cases that led to malpractice suits. Um, if you know stuff about medicine – Malpract doctors get sued all the time when stuff goes wrong and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're negligent, but the volume and severity of the cases, the malpractice cases that Dr. Patel was involved with should have raised a few more red flags than it did. Um, so staff at Kaiser Permanente said that Dr. Patel would often turn up even on his days off and perform surgery on patients that were not his responsibility. In some cases, the surgery was not even required and caused serious injuries or even death to the patient. So here are a few of the problematic cases he was involved with in Oregon. Um, Ellen just did like a really grand hand gesture as well as she said that. I'm presenting it. Yeah. I need to, I'm presenting it. There we I'm go. I'm doing that office desk help girl emoji. So uh, in 1992, Patel operated on a 28-year-old man who was suffering from a disease which caused severe bowel irritation. The operation was to create a new bowel for the patient out of his stomach lining. Throughout the course of the operation, the surgeons, Dr. Patel and the surgical resident he was supervising, severed the patient's urethra. <gasps> a few no! weeks. Uh-huh. Just you freaking wait, girl. <laughs> a few weeks after the operation, the patient said that he began urinating from his rectum. Oh my God. <laughs> so what? basically they had put Essentially, they had put the cords in the wrong spot. Holy shit! Oh my god! Oh, I'm so messed up right now. Jess, this is the first case of about 18. (laughs) Oh no, that poor guy. Right? So the surgery and complications left the patient impotent and he ultimately settled with Kaiser Permanente for 100,000 US dollars. Which is not enough. That is not enough. <laughs> it's not that enough. That is not enough. You, you have to pee through your butt. It's not <laughs> enough. <laughs> oh, my God. <gasps> okay. I'm going to – I need to regroup. Okay. Have some more Coke, no sugar. It will okay, fix you. keep going. Yep. So, in 1993, a patient presented to Dr. Patel with severe abdominal pain. This patient had a family history of polyposis, which is a predisposition to colon cancer, which the patient's father and uncle had both died of. Patel ordered a sigmoidoscopy, which is a test that detects abnormalities in the lower colon. The test came back clean and Dr. Patel told her that she was healthy. However, it was later found out that the sigmoidoscopy was the wrong test to order in this case when the patient was young and had a significant family history of colon cancer. Patel should have ordered a colonoscopy, which is a more extensive test that screens the entire colon in order to identify the polyps that can develop into cancer. This was never done and the patient died of colon cancer two years later. Never knowing, basically, that she was sick. Um, not funny. <laughs> no. Not funny at all. In, 19, like, is, uh... in 1995, a patient was placed under Dr. Patel's care for a hernia repair. 
During the surgery, the femoral vein in her right leg was accidentally damaged and then purposely severed so that Dr. Patel could attempt a repair. As a result, a potentially life-threatening blood clot had formed. The patient did not die but suffered from excruciating pain that left her unable to walk for six months. Um, so a hernia repair is actually quite a minor surgery and hernias happens mostly... Happens all the time. Happens all the time. Also mostly occur in the groin and abdominal areas and don't really Happen in the leg. In the right leg. He severed an artery. He severed an artery in her right so leg. Just so he could be like, fuck yeah, look at me, do it this. I don't think he did it on purpose. I think he just like, I don't know, was wielding nicked the scalpel it. like a sword and nicked it. And then was like, don't worry, I can fix that. And then... Made her unable to walk for six months. Jesus Christ. So that that is literally just like a very small represent, representative sample from um, Oregon. And like obviously any one of these cases, cases or any of the other cases where a patient died under Dr. Patel's care should have triggered a review from Kaiser Permanente. But the hospital didn't actually begin a serious investigation until the late 90s. So during his operational years at Kaiser Permanente, co-workers and residents of Dr. Patel's reported that he was sloppy, arrogant, and at times cruel, yelling at patients or at nurses. So in June of 1998, following review, Kaiser banned Patel from pancreas and liver surgeries and colon reconstructions. They also required that Patel get a second opinion before any difficult surgeries, including esophagectomies. He was placed on probation in 1999 and officially sanctioned by the state medical board in 2000. He took a leave of absence in February of 2001 before finally resigning from Kaiser Permanente on June 20th, a day before Kaiser Permanente was due to fire him. Further setback occurred in August of 2001 when the New York Medical Board ordered Dr. Patel to surrender his medical license and that his name be stricken from the roster of physicians in New York. So Patel was out of a job and in complete disgrace. Um, The fact that he had been resolutely informed that he was shitty at being a surgeon didn't deter him though. And he went on the job hunt. Um, So in Oregon, they have really, really strict laws about um, medical malpractice suits. So no information about a doctor's performance, surgical mishaps or other malpractice or the undertaking of internal investigations can be reported even in court. So if a doctor is like being investigated for malpractice and somebody says like, hey, is this doctor being investigated for malpractice? You can't answer. Like it's so confidential. So he was being like, he had this internal review and he got all these references from the people he worked with that said like, this guy's an amazing, amazing surgeon and we love him. Um, And nobody ever knew until basically it was too late that he was actually under review and that he had his license revoked. Oh my God. I know. In Bundaberg in 2002, Bundaberg-based hospital was suffering from what a number of regional hospitals suffer from, which is the inability to hold on to competent surgeons for long periods of time. Working conditions at the base at this point in time were not very good. They were quite understaffed um, and staff were always working like 14, 15, 16 hour shifts, doing things that weren't their responsibility because, you know, it wasn't a very attractive proposition. As Zane can probably attest, Bundaberg is not the most not glamorous city on earth. And so they couldn't, they couldn't hold on to staff for very long. So the director of surgery had recently vacated his position and it fell to the acting director of medical services, Dr. Nidem, to attempt to fill the position. So he advertised the position in the Korea Mail and the Australian and two Australian-based surgeons applied for it. But Dr. Nidem was like, nah, not a fan. So he relisted the position. He listed for a senior medical officer surgery 
instead of the director of surgery position and started to look overseas. So he put the advertisement out with a recruitment company um, and they started to look for overseas doctors. And there they found Dr. Jayant Patel, um, who was eager to get away to somewhere where no one knew his name. So as a part of being able to work in Australia, the medical board needed to grant Dr. Patel registration as a surgeon in Queensland. Part of this application for registration requires the applicant answer questions about whether or not your registration as a surgeon has ever been cancelled, to which Dr. Patel answered no. Nah, never. Even though it had. Um, Patel was also required to submit to the board his medical degrees, his CV and a verification of licensure, which is basically the document that says, yes, this person is a registered surgeon. Um, In Australia, we call that the certificate of good standing. So the copy of his certificate of good handing that he handed in had a note down the bottom that said, standing, public order on file C attached. But there was no attachment to it. And both the person at the recruitment agency and the person who worked for the Queensland Medical Board... Didn't follow up. They didn't know. For them, it was either like you you're, you have the certificate of good standing or you don't have one. There, there wasn't... We don't have the thing in Australia where it can be like amended or it can have like anything attached. or anything. Exactly. It was a yes or no question. He handed in the thing. They were like, whatever, we don't need to read this attachment that he didn't uh, provide. Um, And so he was offered the position of senior medical officer surgery at Bundaberg Base Hospital. So he was due to begin work on April 1st of 2003. And although he was hired as an SMO, he was being treated basically from the get-go as the director of surgery. So um, on the 9th of April, so a week after he started there, Dr. Nidem wrote in a human resources email, are we paying Jay Patel a director's allowance? If not, could we do so please as he is the director of surgery? So the guy that took over from Dr. Nidem, Dr. Keating, who became the um, director of medical services, was introduced to Patel from the get-go as the director of surgery. Um, basically the director of surgery is the person who is in control of every surgical aspect of the hospital. So they decide who undergo surgery, how it's done, what the care is, everything like that. The difference between that and the senior medical officer role is that for the director of surgery, there's no supervision. There's nobody above you being Mm -hmm. like, you do this, you do this. He was in charge of it all. So he was basically able to work unsupervised and unchecked with his history of medical malpractice completely unknown, essentially from the minute that he stepped into Bundaberg Base Hospital. So as you can imagine, the complaints began rolling in basically as soon as he started. So I'm going to go through now in some detail about the more heinous complaints from staff and patients at the base. All right, I'm going to rearrange. There we go. Okay, if you need a I'm bucket, ready. get a bucket yeah, because right. it's gross. Um, quick note, some of his patients have been identified like by name and some of them haven't. So some of them I'll use their patient number and some of them I'll use their name. So the first complaint comes in on May 14th, 2003. So about six weeks after Patel started working there. Six weeks. Six Holy weeks. Holy shit. Okay, yep. So this patient who's known as P74 was waiting at the base day surgery unit so that a Dr. Kingston could perform surgery to remove the epididymis, which is the tube that holds your sperm. So old mate is chilling, waiting to get his sperm tube cut out when Dr. Patel rolls up to where he's waiting and inadvertently conducts a gastro a gastroscopy on him, which is where like they shove a tube up your up. intestines. What? Yeah. So he rolls up on this guy is like, oh, you need a gastroscopy. I'll do one for you right now. And the patient was like, you're the doctor, you know best and rolls along with him. Um, so the patient didn't consent to the surgery and the surgery hadn't been scheduled. And also he needed his ball tube cut out. He didn't need a gastroscopy. So he complained. Um, 
which was basically swept under the rug by Dr. Keating, who investigated in sarcastic quotation marks and found that there was insufficient checks done in the transfer of the patient from the day surgery unit. So he basically said it was an honest misunderstanding. Um, So the second complaint came in on May 19, so five days later. Um, James Phillips had a potentially incurable lesion in the esophagus. He also had a kidney condition for which he was receiving dialysis through a graft, but the graft itself was beginning to close over. There was the potential that surgery could lead to the development of a blood clot near the graft, which would prevent dialysis and cause the patient serious harm. An esophagectomy was one potential treatment for the lesion, but wasn't recommended due to the patient's sensitive state. An esophagectomy can be a quite risky operation, and the question arose to the people who were under who decided on his care whether or not he should be sent to a hospital in Brisbane, which would be able to offer him better care. Um, but Dr. Patel decided to do the esophagectomy at the base. Philip survived the operation, but a nurse who worked in the intensive care unit called Tony Hoffman, who had been an ICU nurse for 22 years and had been the most senior nurse in the ICU at the base for three years, was very distressed by Philip's state when he entered post-operative care. The patient was unstable with a blood pressure too low to be recorded, like not even like blipping up on that machine. Um, And the anaesthetist made the comment to her that this is an expensive way to die. Phillips was given injections of adrenaline to increase his blood pressure and was put on ventilator support, but he eventually progressed to brain death. Nurse Hoffman was very distressed by what happened to Phillips and approached her line manager who advised her to approach Dr. Keating to make a complaint. She said to Dr. Keating in a meeting some weeks later that Dr. Patel was rude, loud and did not work collaboratively with the ICU medical staff and that his choice of drugs and treatment were 20 years behind contemporary thinking. She also mentioned to Dr. Keating that while ICU staff were trying to care for Phillips while he was in incredibly unstable and unsafe condition, Dr. Patel was reporting to the patient's family that he was stable. She also stated to Dr. Keating that she did not believe the facilities at the base were sufficient to support patients recovering from esophagectomies, especially ones in the case of Phillips where there were further medical issues that increased the risk of surgery. The ICU at the base only had three ventilators and did not have adequate nursing staff to care for more than two ventilated patients at a time. She believed it was more appropriate to transfer patients requiring esophagectomies to a hospital in Brisbane with greater facilities. Dr. Keating told Nurse Hoffman that Dr. Patel was a very experienced surgeon, very used to doing these sorts of surgeries, and that it was important that we keep him in the hospital. So the fourth complaint came in June 2003. A patient known as P18 underwent an esophagectomy performed by Dr. Patel, which had serious complications. The patient suffered from wound dehiscence, which is where the wound ruptures along the surgical incision. And let me tell you, take a shot every time I say the word wound dehiscence during this episode because it comes up a lot. Um, So this patient had to return to the operating theatre three times to fix issues. Oh! He stayed in the ICU for 14 days where patients undergoing esophagectomies would normally be in the ICU for two to three days. Dr. Patel was unwilling to transfer the patients to a hospital in Brisbane where he may be better cared for, despite nurses and other colleagues urging him to do so. And eventually, when he came around to the idea of a transfer, the bed in Brisbane was no longer available. Tony Hoffman again wrote to Dr. Keating to share her continued concern that the ICU at the base was not equipped to deal with the level of severity of the surgery. For a level one ICU like the base had, patients should be kept in intensive care for 24 hours and no longer. This patient ended up being in the ICU for a fortnight. Oh my God. 
A Dr. John Joyner also approached Dr. Keating and said that the base's ICU was not sufficient to deal with the level of support that an esophagectomy required. He said that a hospital cannot maintain its competency with the procedure unless they were doing 30 a year, which Bundaberg Base was not. Dr. Patel relented and the patient ended up finally being transferred to the Marta Hospital in Brisbane on the 20th of June 2003. Dr. Keating was then approached by an intensive care specialist at the Marta called Dr. Peter Cook, who was alarmed that a doctor at Bundaberg Base would be performing such a difficult and high-risk procedure without the appropriate facilities for post-operative care. The notion that a, surgery, that a surgeon would attempt the surgery at the base called into question the competency and judgment of the surgeon, he said. In speaking with Dr. Cook, Dr. Keating said that he would confer with the director of surgery and the director of anesthetics as to whether or not esophagectomies could continue at the base. Obviously, Dr. Patel was the director of surgery, so he's not really going to call into question his own competence. And apparently esophagectomies were his favourite surgery to do, so he wasn't going to stop doing them. And indeed, they did keep on going on at the base, even though they weren't prepared to deal with them. Um, so the next complaint concerned Dr. Patel's hygiene and came from a nurse named Dr. Ge- a nurse named Gail Aylmer, who was the nurse practice coordinator for the surgical ward from April 14 to May 11th of May 2003. She said that she would accompany Dr. Patel on his rounds, but she observed that he did not wash his hands between examining patients. Oh my god! Even if he was touching their wounds or changing their dressings. <laughs> Oh my god, I just threw my glasses into my car. Some Coke No Sugar. Oh my god. This episode of Murder in the Land of Oz sponsored by Coke No Sugar. <laughs> oh my god. Yep. Oh. So she said that she spoke to Dr. Patel about the importance of basic infection control techniques, but his behavior didn't change. She became the infection control coordinator on the 2nd of June 2003 and in this time period a number of nurses in the Department of Surgery came to her saying that they were high, having higher than usual rates of wound dehiscence. Take a shot. <gasps> wound dehiscence can occur for two reasons. Poor wound closure technique, i.e. not sewing it up correctly or as a result of infection. Someone just getting their fingers all up in your... Getting their <laughs> dirty, dirty, unwashed fingers up in your wound. Your surgical wound. Oh. So there were 13 reported incidents of wound dehiscence in a two-month period where usual number, numbers were maybe two or three. Nurse Elmer compiled a report that showed the majority of wound dehiscence incidents were coming from Dr. Patel's patients and presented her findings to Dr. Keating. Then one day, Dr. Patel comes and finds her in the corridor with a copy of the report and goes through every single case with her, giving an explanation for what happened. And she was like, I mean, he's the surgeon, I'm the nurse, I suppose his explanations are okay. But she was also like shocked that Dr. Keating would just hand the report over to Dr. Patel and not deal with the issue confidentially like he was supposed to. Um, The new nurses, the nurses at this time came up for a new nickname for Dr. Patel, which was Dr. E. Coli. Oh God, I feel sick. (laughs) I feel sick. (laughs) Um, The next complaint came on October 28th, 2003 and concerned patient Ian Fleming who had suffered from diverticular disease since about 2001. So um, diverticular disease is basically when little defects in the muscle wall of the small intestine or colon allow small pockets or pouches to form, which is known as diverticulosis. Diverticulitis is where those pouches become infected or inflamed and together they make diverticular disease. 
Diverticular disease is extremely common and Ian Fleming suffered from it in very degree, varying degrees of severity. Not to be confused with Ian Fleming who wrote James, James Bond. Bond. <laughs> Seriously, I had that written in here and I was like, nobody's going to know who wrote James Bond. That's, that's a niche Except reference. Except me. Except for everybody because James Bond is one of the most popular <laughs> things of all time. Um, but no, James, I can't, I don't know if Ian Fleming suffered from <laughs> diverticular disease, but he was not treated by Dr. Patel. So in May of 2003, Dr. Patel conducted an operation known as a sigmoid colectomy, which is the removal of the lower part of the large bowel above the rectum. Oh my God, these are such important surgeries that this guy is doing and I, I can't, oh, yep, yep. <laughs> Um, Mr. Fleming reported rectal bleeding and blood in his bowel movements after the surgery, but Dr. Patel discharged him anyway. He returned to hospital a few days later for the removal of the surgical staples, by which time there was swelling and dark red discoloration around the wound, as well as significant pain. Ian Fleming described his condition to Dr. Patel, but Dr. Patel said that he was fine. Hold on to your hats, Jess. On May 29, 2003, Mr. Fleming's wound, quote unquote, blew out. And he was again admitted to the hospital. So essentially his insides were coming out of him. Oh my God. The wound was seriously infected. And while nurses wanted to use a suction pump and wound dressings to drain the infection site, Dr. Patel denied their requests. Dr. Patel attempted to treat the infection with antibiotics, but the wound did not heal. No fucking wonder. Oh, you fucking piece of shit. Oh my God. Oh, I'm so uncomfortable with this. (laughs) Dr. Patel attended Mr. Fleming's bedside with a group of young doctors and he was apparently agitated with the lack of healing. One of the young doctors returned later, said that he was sent by Dr. Patel and began separating the wound without the use of anaesthetic. You're fucking with me. Sadly, this is indeed true. Ian was discharged on June 4th, but the wound did not heal until August of 2003 and he was in constant pain. And he complained on October 23rd. Um, Dr. Keating called Ian back and said to him, I hear you have lodged a complaint against Dr. Patel. I must tell you that he is a fine surgeon and we are lucky to have him here in Bundaberg. Ian Fleming said that during their 30 to 40 minute conversation that Dr. Keating was belittling and condescending and there was no further action taken. So the ninth complaint came from the renal unit at the base. Oh no, that means kidneys. That does mean kidneys. The case, uh, the specific case related to this complaint um, arose on the 25th of November 2003 when two patients were having blood flow problems with the central line used for hemodialysis. So basically the blood was not going through the dialysis machine at the right rate. Mm. Um, Dr. Patel was there to place a guide wire into the catheters to dislodge any potential blockages and keep that blood flowing. The three nurses that attended this procedure reported a number of concerns. Dr. Patel did not wash his hands before the procedures and ignored a nurse's request to do so, saying, doctors don't have germs. I'm I'm starting to tear up because I'm... I mean, doctors have germs. Doctors have lots of germs. I'm so... I can't... It's progress. He did, however, agree to wear gloves during the surgery, but he did not wash his hands or change gloves between patients, nor did he replace the covering of the catheters as soon as the procedure was done in order to minimise the risk of infection. He also used a syringe on a patient, returned it to the tray, then picked it up later to use on the other patient oh before he was God. stopped by a nurse. No, no, 
No. No, no. No. <laughs> Jess is actively crying. <laughs> Same girl. I feel quite faint. Um, so the attending nurses gave their complaint through their superior to Dr. Keating. Hold on, so a nurse stopped him from using the same Yeah, needle the bow. nurse was like, whoa, you've already used that syringe on a patient. And he was like, my mistake. Oh, okay. Yep, 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 um, yep, 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 yep. Miss, Dr. Keating uh, gave the indication to the nurses that he would follow up with Dr. Patel, but it seems like this was not undertaken. I can't even begin to describe the pains in my person right now. Imagine the pains in the person of those two people undergoing dialysis. <laughs> okay, keep going. So the renal unit recommends to patients undergoing dialysis that they choose the option of peritoneal dialysis, which is where fluids are introduced to a patient through a catheter inserted into the peritoneum, which is the abdominal cavity, mm. rather than hemodialysis, which is like the blood. Yeah. So this form of dialysis gives patients greater independence. Basically, you can go, undergo dialysis while at home or while doing other things. You don't yeah. have to be lying in a bed hooked up to a thing. Yeah, I, um, one of my students was on dialysis and the cat, like the cat, like you literally it's just couldn't, like in you your couldn't stomach. see, you yeah. couldn't see you it couldn't under see her school it. uniform. Like it was, yeah, okay. Um, so not long after arriving at the base, Dr. Patel offered his services to the renal unit in placing catheters. He visited the unit regularly, regularly to do so, and staff noted that he did not observe the proper standards of sterility while dealing with patients, which is a big red flag in any hospital context, but particularly to the renal unit, as renal disease can suppress the immune system, making patients even more vulnerable to infection and other diseases. So the nurse in charge, in charge of peritoneal dialysis, Lindsay Drews, observed some issues with the way that Dr. Patel handled his patients. She began compiling an exhaustive report of all peritoneal dialysis patients at the base, which demonstrated that 100% of the patients that Dr. Patel fitted with the catheter experienced complications. 100%. 100%. She voiced some of her concerns to Dr. Mayak, who is the director of medicine at the base, um, and she also approached Dr. Patel wanting to get the issue sorted out informally. But he stormed out of the room saying that he was the surgeon and she was the nurse and that she should deal with it. So while all of this is going on, there was a patient called P30 that had a catheter inserted by Dr. Patel. The catheter had moved, which is not uncommon with catheter placement, and the patient presented to Dr. Patel to have the issue fixed. In the course of this operation, Dr. Patel perforated the patient's thoracic vein, which is the major vein located in your chest wall. And the patient bled out and died. This is the first time ever that a patient had died at the base during the insertion of a catheter. And Nurse Drews believed that the death was a direct result of Dr. Patel's lack of competence. In January of 2004, Nurse Drews went to Dr. Mayak about the death of P30 and provided him with the copy of the report that she had made about the catheter placements known as the catheter report. For the six patients that Dr. Patel had fitted with a peritoneal catheter in 2003, each had either been placed in the incorrect way, the catheter had either migrated, become infected or had outflow issues and that three of the patients had required further, further surgical interventions, two had died and one had suffered from a serious infection. So from my research, pace, placing a peritoneal catheter is not a particularly difficult or high risk operation and while usually catheters are placed during, during surgery under general anaesthetic, it is possible to do it under local anesthesia and patients sometimes don't even have to stay in the hospital overnight. So to have two patients die after the placement of a peritoneal catheter is incredibly unusual. So Dr. Mayak, the director of medicine, was not a fan of Dr. Patel. He relayed evidence of a situation where a patient P33 was admitted to the hospital with a heart attack. 
The team in the course of treatment for a renal problem had accidentally perforated his jugular vein and he began bleeding out. And Dr. Patel arrived on scene insisting that he operate. Dr. Mayak said that the patient was unlikely to survive surgery due to the fact that he had A, recently suffered a heart attack and B, was undergoing treatment for kidney disease. He managed to hold Dr. Patel off until nurses could stem the bleeding non-surgically and transfer the patient to Brisbane without Dr. Patel knowing. He was very alarmed that Dr. Patel would just literally charge in and demand to operate on a person who was so unstable that it was unlikely he would survive surgery. At another time, Dr. Mayak attended the operating theatre to watch Dr. Patel do a pericardial window, which is a procedure where a part of the sac around the heart known as the pericardium is removed, which allows doctors to drain excess fluid from around the heart. Dr. Mayak was horrified to see that Dr. Patel had not placed the patient under general anesthesia and the patient was screaming in pain. Oh my God. 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 <laughs> Jess is crying. <laughs> Awkward silence while we let Jess cry. So armed with all of this information, when Dr. Mayak went on extended leave in January of 2004, he gave strict instruction that none of his patients were to be do- operated on by Dr. Patel. He also handed Nurse Druce's catheter report to Dr. Keating, to which he received no response. He asked Dr. Keating about the status of the report much later when in October of 2004 and Dr. Keating claimed that he never received a copy of the report. Mr. Mayak again gave Dr. Keating a copy of the report and Dr. Keating again did nothing. So a patient named Desmond Bramich was admitted to the base on the 25th of July 2004 and he was suffering from crush injuries after a caravan fell on him. He received treatment and was in a stable condition up until about 1 p.m. on July 27th. I'm laughing because Jess is freaking out. (laughs) Jess is like rocking back and forth in her chair. Um, Yeah, where he started deteriorating quite quickly. Dr. Gaffield, Dr. Carter and an anaesthetist, Dr. Eunice, agreed that Mr. Bramich should be transferred to Brisbane. Mr. Bramich was struggling for breath and was suffering from low blood pressure. The team attempted to stabilize him. He was moved to the ICU where his condition did not improve, although the patient was ventilated in order to stabilise his breathing. A CT scan was performed, which was inconclusive as to the cause of the patient's distress. At around 5pm, Dr. Patel arrived on scene. Dr. Patel decided to perform a pericardiocentesis, which is a procedure in which a needle is inserted into the pericardium in order to withdraw fluid. Dr. Patel made between 10 and 50 attempts to insert the needle in the right location using a stabbing motion. I'm sorry, uh, between 10 and 50? Yes. 50 is the number that I saw quoted most often, but one person in the inquiry said 10. But pretty, it's, it's fairly well established that it was in, in the 50s region. The nurses reported that it was around 50 attempts to insert the needle. Again, with a stabbing motion. If you've ever received a needle in any capacity... The general procedure is oh not to God, stab. I'm pass out. I'm so going to pass out right now. Oh, my God. At one point, he requested that a nurse bring him a larger needle, which oh. she did. <laughs> Two to five milliliters of blood was eventually drawn from the patient. And generally, if this procedure is required, the patient starts recovering essentially instantly. This did not happen for Mr. Bramage, and he died sometime after midnight. His death was apparently witnessed by his nine-year-old daughter. And when his wife began crying upon hearing the news, Patel allegedly screamed at her and told her to be quiet. (laughs) Medical staff were incredibly alarmed by this treatment of Mr. Bramich and his family and submitted adverse event forms about the incident. 
In these forms, one of which was given by Tony Hoffman, it was stated that Dr. Patel's unwillingness to transfer patients to Brisbane, his tendency to perform operations which he was unequipped to do and the hospital was unequipped to handle, and his general attitude of fear and intimidation to staff had contributed to the death of Mr. Bramich. Dr. Keating intended to follow up with the relevant staff members in this issue, but that did not occur. Next case. Jerry Kemp's presented to the base in December of 2004 with a lump in his throat that prevented him from eating. Dr. Smallberger saw him in the Department of Medicine and identified that Mr. Kemp's had a large cancerous mass in his esophagus and that the cancer had spread to other parts of his body. He recommended that Kemp's be transferred to Brisbane where the staff there would be able to provide chemotherapy and the laparoscopic or keyhole induction of a stent to help with swallowing. Brisbane would not allow the transfer without permission from the Bundaberg surgeons, so Dr. Smallberger sent Mr. Kemp's to the Department of Surgery. Dr. Patel told Mr. Kemp's that keyhole surgery was a band-aid option and that it would be better for him to undergo an esophagectomy in Bundaberg. Of course he would. Mr. Kemp's underwent the surgery and Dr. Patel told his wife Judy Kemp's that it was excess and there was only a little bleeding. As time went on, however, Mrs. Kemp's could see that they were pumping, in her words, a tonne of blood into her husband. Dr. Patel left Mr. Kemp's in the ICU for five hours with nurses pleading him to re-examine Mr. Kemp's to find the source of the bleeding. Mr. Kemp's underwent surgery a second time to try and stop the bleeding. In this surgery, Dr. Patel examined the lungs and the spleen but could, no, could find no cause for the bleeding. He told Ms. Kemp's the blood must be coming from the heart and as Dr. Patel was not a heart surgeon, there was nothing he could do about it. Mr. Kemp's bled to death. So Dr. Teeley, a vascular surgeon, told the court at the inquiry that a spontaneous aortic rupture, aka tons of bleeding, was incredibly rare and it was likely that the damage was caused by a mistake made during surgery. A competent surgeon would have been able to recognise the cause and possibly attempted a repair. Dr. Behrens, the anaesthetist, and Dr. Carter wanted to refer the matter to the coroner. They brought it to Dr. Keating and Dr. Keating said, essentially, do what you want, but I'm not going to pursue the issue for you. Dr. Behrens and Dr. Carter, upon finding out that Mr. Kemp's had already been buried, decided not to refer the matter to the coroner to avoid re-traumatising the family. Two days after Jerry Kemp's died, a 15-year-old patient known as P26 was emergency flown into the base after he fell from a motorbike and suffered an injury to his femoral vein, which caused him to suffer from extreme blood loss. Dr. Patel operated to fix the femoral vein. The blood loss ceased and it seemed that the boy was in a stable condition. However, complications arose and over the next 12 hours, it became apparent that he was suffering from a lack of blood to the left leg, which Dr. Patel conducted two further operations to try and address. Dr. Patel then went on holidays on Christmas Day and left the boy in the ICU at the base without the care of a vascular surgeon until the 1st of January 2005. He lost his leg. He was eventually transferred to a hospital in Brisbane where it discovers that that he was suffering from an acute fever, temperatures of 40 degrees Celsius and a serious infection. His leg had to be amputated at the left knee. It was evident to emergency medical specialist Dr. Stephen Rashford that a patient with such serious symptoms should not have remained at the base after three operations for nine days. Dr. Rashford sent an email to Dr. Keating and Mr. Peter Lecht, who is the district manager for Bundaberg Base, about the patient. Dr. Keating provided a report stating that ideally the patient should have been transferred earlier and that the hospital would endeavour to ensure that patients with emergency vascular conditions would be transferred as soon as their condition was made stable. No mention was made of Dr. Patel specifically or that it was his decision for the patient to remain at the base. So that's a fairly comprehensive list of the major complaints that were provided to the hospital by staff and patients. 
Um, this was about a two-year period. Um, and during this entire time, much of the nursing and other medical staff were aware and trying as hard as they could to either get some action from the executive on Dr. Patel or trying at least to keep his potential for damage to a minimum. So one staff member who was constantly trying to look out for patients and kept Dr. Patel at bay was Tony Hoffman. As we've seen, she'd approached Dr. Keating a number of times with complaints that were dismissed. She had gone to the head of nursing a number of times with complaints, again, that were struck down as personality conflicts. She went to the district manager, Mr. Leck, and was advised to provide a written complaint, which she did, outlining the numerous issues, including that Dr. Patel was Patel was operating outside of his scope of practice with his surgeries, that he would not transfer patients, that his techniques were out of date and that he had created an environment of fear for the nursing staff. This letter was dated the 22nd of October, 2004. This was the first major step in getting anybody to deal with Dr. Patel. She mentioned also in this letter, Dr. Patel's tendency to exclaim whenever anybody questioned him that he had made the hospital half a million dollars that year and that Mr. Leck or Dr. Keating would protect him from any harm. So Bundaberg-based hospital received financial incentives if they were performing enough elective surgeries to reach Queensland health targets. Dr. Patel's apparent speed and willingness to do any surgery meant that the hospital was smashing targets and getting money from Queensland Health. Although the inquiry ultimately found that it couldn't be proven that this was the reason why the higher-ups were so unwilling to acknowledge Dr. Patel's incompetence, seems like a pretty good motive seems to me. Seems pretty good incentive to me. Fuck me. Tony Hoffman's letter included a list of all ICU patients that she believed required a formal investigation, around 16 patients in all. Ms. Hoffman did not receive any response to this letter for many months. Around the same time that she was presenting this letter, um, Dr. Mayak was giving Dr. Keating the copy of the catheter report for the second time, which I mentioned earlier. This timeline is a little out of whack because the complaints came after the surgeries happened. So if you're thinking I'm jumping around in time, that's why. Um... Mr. Leck also gave Dr. Keating a copy of the Hoffman letter. Dr. Keating, in response, met with several doctors outlined in the letter. No steps were taken towards getting a review undertaken until the 16th of December 2004. In the meantime, Dr. Patel was still operating on patients and Dr. Keating had made an offer to extend his contract. So Mr. Leck was walking behind the scenes slowly trying to get a review off the ground, but it seemed to be too little too late. In March of 2005, Nurse Hoffman, frustrated with upper management and terrified that Dr. Patel was likely to be working at the base for a longer period of time, contacted her member of parliament, Rob Messenger. Messenger passed her complaint on to the shadow health minister at the time, Stuart Copeland, and he asked a question in question time in parliament about the allegations about Dr. Patel's competence to the minister for health, whose name was Gordon Nuttall. Gordon Nuttall demanded evidence from Dr. Fitzgerald, who was the chief health officer who had begun chief health officer who had begun undergoing a clinical review of the base. Um, Dr. Patel was still not prevented from doing any surgeries and indeed the nursing staff reported that they were reprimanded by higher-ups for violating the code of conduct by going public. Mr. Leck also wrote a letter of support for Dr. Patel that was published in the Bundaberg News Mail. On the 24th of March, uh, Dr. Fitzgerald's audit of Bundaberg Base was presented to the Director General, which suggested a number of systemic changes, but did not actually mention Dr. Patel by name and did nothing to address the statistics which were literally written in the report about the increased rate of patient death, wound dehiscence and other critical issues that had occurred during Dr. Patel's reign. But the heat was finally catching up to Dr. Patel. After being publicly named and shamed during question time and with seri- serious review finally taking base, place up under big base, 
Dr. Patel resigned from Bundaberg Base Hospital on the 23rd of March. Just a few days later, Dr. Patel departed Australia for America on a business class flight paid for by Queensland Health and signed off by Mr. Leck. Sometime later, after the Director General and other important governmental persons had come to the base for a staff forum at the Patel issue, Dr. Keating said that he had done a Google search of Dr. Patel's name and found his disciplinary records from the United States. So two years after he'd started he working there. He finally Googled this fucker. He finally... Googles... Google people. Come on. You go out Google. on a date with the guy and you Google him, okay? Google him. Google the guy that you hire. Fuck's sake. And it's Fuck's literally sake. right there. You can still read it now. Like if you Google Dr. Patel, you get a million articles, but you can still see like the thing on the Oregon oh. Medical Board website that's like yo do not hire this guy he does not know how to be a surgeon i'm like i'm hot and i'm cold and i feel gray right now just the internal feeling is just gray yeah it's not fun oh god okay so the government announced a commission of inquiry into dr patel and the bundaberg base hospital so there was one inquiry which was started that was called the Morris Inquiry, which was begun and then stopped by Dr. Keating and Mr. Leck, who filed an application to the Supreme Court of Queensland to shut the inquiry down as they believed that Anthony Morris QC, who was leading the inquiry, had demonstrated bias against them. The Supreme Court ruled in favour of Keating and Leck and this inquiry was terminated. The new inquiry, known as the Davies Inquiry, began on the 8th of September 2005 and was led by Justice Jeffrey Davies QC, and that is where I've gotten all of my information from for this episode. You can read it online. It's very interesting and very well written. Um, So amongst a detailed explanation of the complaints about Dr. Patel, the Davies Inquiry also conducted a review from three external surgeons who were asked to evaluate the competency of Dr. Patel. Dr. DeLacy, Dr. O'Loughlin and Dr. Woodruff were given a sample of Dr. Patel's patients to consider. Each of the surgeons found that the care given by Dr. Patel was far below the standards of a reasonably competent surgeon. Not a good surgeon, a reasonably reasonably competent competent one. I just want to say that if I ever have to undergo surgery, I would like somebody who is better than reasonably competent to Mm -hmm. be doing it. I'm reasonably competent at my job, but I'm not very good at it. You know how fucking sick. Have you ever had surgery? No. I'm terrified. Honestly, like I am – like my surgery happened years ago, but I'm like running through – I'm like, did, did they wash their hands? Well, you didn't die of an infection, so I they mean, probably did. God. Well, they did a good job, I have to say. They fixed you. They fixed me and also my scars are very not noticeable. Good job, the doctors that did your surgery. At the MARTA. Classic MARTA. Um, Oh, God. Okay. So the surgeons found that Dr. Patel did not conduct appropriate pre-op tests, incorrectly diagnosed patients, did not satisfactorily determine whether or not patients were suitable for surgery in the first place, which led to higher rates of post-op heart attack and post-op respiratory failure. They also found that while surgeons often considered surgery to be a last resort due to the risk factor, Dr. Patel was reluctant to consider other treatments. They found that Dr. Patel had poor surgical techniques that were evidenced by high infection and leak rates, poor wound closure technique, injuries to nearby organs during surgery, removing the wrong organs, missing (laughs) cancers, and failing to remove cancers. They found that Dr. Patel's rate of anastomic leaks, wound adhesions, and incisional hernias was unacceptable. You know what word I can't take from all of that? Dehiscence? Leaks. Oh, yeah. Leaks is a rough one. Things should not be leaking. (laughs) 
No leaks, please. No leaks from my body. Nothing in my body should be leaking. Dr. DeLacy said in his review of Dr. Patel's patients that he had seen complications from surgery that he had never seen before. They found that Dr. Patel failed to diagnose or treat post-operative complications such as hemorrhages, leaks, dehiscence, and cardiorespiratory failure. They said that Dr. Patel never attempted to contact other specialists, get a second opinion, or otherwise help a patient be treated by a surgeon more skilled than himself. They said that it appeared that Dr. Patel was not concerned to ensure the pursue, that the procedures reduced patient suffering. They believe that Dr. Patel viewed the operations as an end in themselves rather than, than as a part of treatment to improve the patient's conditions. Dr. DeLacy said that Dr. Patel's results were a hundred times worse than what you would expect from a normal general surgeon. The inquiry recommended that Dr. Patel's conduct be referred to the Queensland Police Service in, relate to, in relation to the offences of assault, assault occasioning bodily harm, grievous bodily harm, neg- negligent acts causing harm and manslaughter. All told, 87 deaths of Dr. Patel's patients were investigated and it was found that in 13 cases, Dr. Patel's negligence could be demonstrated to be responsible for their deaths. As I mentioned when we started, it's kind of unknown the number of patients that he was 100% responsible for causing the deaths of. A lot of his patients were quite old, which increased the risk of surgery. Um, There are a number of factors that made it difficult to determine just how many deaths he was actually responsible for. But the inquiry found 13 that they believed could be prosecuted. Um, So I'm going to talk about a couple of complaints that weren't uh, part of the inquiry um, but did happen. So one was the case of Mervyn Morris, who was a 75-year-old man who presented to the case with to the base with rectal bleeding. Dr. Patel undertook a colonoscopy to discover the source of the bleeding, but he was unable to find the source and there was no evidence of cancer. But the bleeding didn't stop and Dr. Patel decided to remove a part of Mervyn's bowel and install a colostomy bag. Essentially what you do is you cut off a bit of the colon, bring it to the surface of the body where it forms a stoma, which is essentially like a hole, um, Then the surgeon affixes the colostomy bag, which collects the waste of the person. So it's essentially a surgery that bypasses your rectum entirely. Um, Anyway, a lot of people who have like, um, you know, those horrible bowel disease have to get have to get the yeah yeah it's it's a little gross yeah. Um, Anyway, Mervyn suffered from wound adhesions. Of course, he did. Surprised, surprising no one. Um, And part of his bowel was poking through the wound hole. Patels tried to stitch him up again, but Mervyn continued to suffer from other complications such as blood in his urine, trouble breathing, anemia and infection. Mervyn Morris died on the 14th of June 2003. A similar case occurred for Ian Vowles, age 62, who underwent a colonoscopy from Dr. Patel, who found a polyp in his colon. He told Ian, who had previously had bowel cancer, that it was a precancerous lump and that his bowel didn't like his body and he would have to take the whole bowel out, which he did and performed a similar surgery to the one on Mervyn Morris, attaching the end of the small intestine to the abdominal wall via the stoma. Ian suffered complications. In his words, the stoma went black and fell off. Patel performed surgery again to try and fix the problems, but it didn't take. Ian Vowles ended up travelling to Brisbane to get it fixed, but at that time it was too late. He was told that he would be running around like a young horse after the surgery, but he ended up needing to go into early retirement due to the pain and the impact the surgery had on his energy levels. He was also left impotent by the surgery. Oh, and the polyp was benign and there was nothing wrong with his bowel. So what he should have done was snip that little polyp right off, but instead he removed his entire bowel and ruined his life. But he lived. 
So he's doing better than other Dr. Patel patients. So on the 11th of March, 2008, FBI agents banged on the door of the house in Oregon where Dr. Patel was hiding out because they decided to charge him with the murders of all these people. The US judges denied bail and Dr. Patel was held in custody while the extradition process went underway. He was extradited on the 19th of July, 2008 and taken to the Roma Street Watch House where he was granted bail. His trial began on March 21st, 2010. He was charged with three counts of manslaughter for the deaths of Mervyn Morris, James Phillips and Jerry Kemps and one count of grievous bodily harm for Ian Vowles. The case was preceded over by Justice John Byrne, who you recall from the Alison Baden Clay episode. We have Ross Martin, SC, on the prosecution, whose plan of attack, much like my own today, was basically to go through and gather evidence for each of the patients in order to demonstrate that it was Dr. Patel's negligence and lack of skill at surgery that caused the death and maiming of these individuals. The trial went for 53 days and involved testimony from 76 witnesses, many of them staff at Bundaberg Base who had witnessed firsthand Dr. Patel's ineptitude. One witness was Ian Vowles, who was the living victim who had his healthy bowel removed. Um, another old friend of the podcast, Michael Byrne QC, acted as Dr. Patel's defense and he was the one who defended Jared Baden Clay. So there's literally only two legal practitioners in Brisbane, apparently. Um, Michael Byrne's strategy was basically to paint Patel as a dedicated, hardworking surgeon who had come to under who had come to Bundaberg in a time of great need, who worked long hours, trained staff, and did everything he could to help his patients. He said that Patel's surgeries were performed under an honest and reasonable but mistaken belief regarding the patient's condition and that he was not criminally responsible to any greater extent than if the patient's condition had been what he believed it to be. So as the trial went on, this position, which sounds horrific to us who have just been hearing all the terrible things that this guy had done wrong, was kind of vindicated because the testimony regarding these four surgeries that he was being charged for was saying that he didn't actually perform the surgeries themselves that incompetently. This gave the prosecution major anxiety. So on around the 40th day of the trial, things started to get a little bit hinky. So one of the first parts of any trial process is that the prosecution and the defense present their case. So the prosecution's case was like, Your Honor, I will demonstrate that these patients died because Jayant Patel is an incompetent surgeon who couldn't correctly apply a Band-Aid and I've got 75 witnesses that'll tell you the same. But as the trial goes on, it turns out that the witnesses aren't saying that. They're saying that like he yells at nurses and patients, he's got a bad attitude, he's hygienic, he can't, he can't read a CT scan. But in terms of the four surgeries in this case, he wasn't like amputating the leg instead of the arm. So the prosecution panics and they decide that they want to change their case essentially. They're now like, Your Honor, Jayant Patel is a terrible surgeon and he never should have decided to undergo these surgeries in the first place because the fact that he was barred from doing them in Oregon but still decided to do them anyway proves that he was negligent. So it's it's kind of like it's a it's a it's a small distinction, but it's an important legal distinction. Um, and it was actually the subject of a week of legal debate without the jury present. So um, the prosecution originally brought Patel up under Section 288 of the Queensland Criminal Code, which reads thusly, it is the duty of every person who, except in a case of necessity, undertakes to administer surgical or medical treatment to any other person or to do any other lawful act which is or may be dangerous to human life or health, to have reasonable skill and to use reasonable care in doing such an act, and the person is held to have caused any consequences which result 
to the life or health of any person by reason of any omission to observe or perform that duty. Basically, in non-complicated legal stuff, if you're going to do a surgery, you better be good at the surgery. Otherwise, you're liable for the deaths. Um, so now that had been kind of demonstrated that Patel wasn't necessarily that shitty in doing the act of surgery, the prosecution wanted to change the section of the criminal code that he was charged under to section 282, which reads in part, a person is not criminally responsible for performing or providing in good faith and with reasonable care and skill, a surgical operation or medical treatment if performing the operation or providing the medical treatment is reasonable, having regard to the patient's state at the time and to all the circumstances of the case. So the thinking of the prosecution here was that Section 288 referred to doing the act and Section 282 referred to the reasonableness of undertaking the act. So in their new case, they were saying that he was negligent in deciding to perform the surgery, knowing that he was shit at it. They were like, it's 282. We're changing it. It's 282 now. Justice Byrne, the judge, was like, we have been at this for three months and now you're wanting to change your entire case? Fuck you guys. Like he was not impressed that the prosecution at this point in the trial was trying to change it all up. He said, sure, you can change your case. But he actually did some very like groundbreaking legal decisions and he said that Section 288 of the Criminal Code also encompasses the decision to perform surgery. So it's not just the doing of the surgery that is covered by it. It's everything to do with deciding to do the surgery, doing the surgery itself, post-operative care, et cetera, et cetera. The prosecution's like, dope, let's nail this bastard. Um, And they did. So the jury finds Dr. Patel guilty of the three counts of manslaughter and one count of grievous bodily harm. And Dr. Patel is sentenced to seven years in jail. Rejoice, justice is served. So the attorney general at the time, like many of you listening right now probably, was like, seven years for killing three people? Fuck that. And began an appeal to get Patel a harsher sentence, but that was denied. Patel also appealed his sentence to the Queensland Court of Appeal, saying that there was a miscarriage of justice, that his sentence was manifestly excessive, that the prosecution had moved the goalpost and rendered much of the evidence irrelevant, and that he should never have been prosecuted under Section 288 in the first place. The Queensland Court of Appeal was like, no, we're good, you can stay in jail. But Patel and his legal defence were not satisfied and they went to the High Court, essentially with the same case. So the High Court sadly agreed with the defence. They kept Justice Byrne's interpretation of Section 288, but basically said that due to the fact the prosecution indeed did move the goalposts, so much of the testimony from witnesses as to Patel's character was was prejudicial. So there was no way that the jury could be objective when it came to that part of the new case because they'd already heard all this testimony that had impacted that he was. And it's like, how is that going to be relevant? Because exactly because he'd heard all this testimony about how they were, he was an incompetent surgeon, but now the competence of surgery isn't the thing that's under attack. It's Mm -hmm. deciding to do the surgery. So they've just heard 40 days of testimony that's irrelevant essentially. And that paints him in, in the terms of the new case in a worse light. Um, which I think is correct. Mm. It does end up being correct. I think the prosecution probably made a big mistake trying to change the way the case was going because everything probably would have been fine if they didn't. Um, alrighty. So they did decide that a mis- miscarriage of justice had occurred. So a new trial was ordered for Dr. Patel. 
This time he was only facing a manslaughter charge for the death of Mervyn Morris, who was the 75-year-old who um, died after a colectomy performed by Dr. Patel. The prosecution was still going with that it's the decision to operate issue. Um, And there were a number of doctors who worked with Dr. Patel at the base who said that he was incorrect in deciding to operate on Mervyn because he was 75, because he had other issues that meant that surgery was not safe for him. Um, But there were also other doctors, external doctors that said that they would have done the same thing and that the decision to undergo surgery was sound. So the jury found him not guilty of manslaughter for the death of Mervyn Morris. The original plan from the prosecution was to try all the four cases one after each other, but this defeat basically signaled to them that would be a waste of time and money to prosecute the other cases. Instead, the prosecution decided to drop the manslaughter and grievous bodily harm charges in exchange for Patel pleading guilty to two counts of fraud in regards to him lying about his registration when he applied for the job in the first place. Patel agreed and he was given a two-year suspended sentence for the fraud charges. So the fraud trial occurred in 2013, 10 years after Jane Patel first stepped in Bundaberg Base Hospital. He ultimately spent only two and a half years in prison for the deaths and the maiming of the four patients he was prosecuted for harming. So legally, Dr. Patel is innocent of any crime relating to their deaths. In 2015, the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal found that Patel was not competent enough to undertake the surgeries he was undertaking and that he only got the job in the first place through deception. They barred Patel from ever registering as any medical professional in Australia and notified international medical organisations to ensure he could not do so overseas. So Dr. Patel will never wield a scalpel ever again, but I can't help but feel like that is insufficient. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. Like, I think the thing that sucks is that, you know, even though it was considered prejudicial, and I do think it was prejudicial, all that evidence from the people that he worked with testifying that he was not a good enough surgeon to undergo these surgeries, like, that was true. You know, he wasn't good enough. People did die and they suffered horribly. I think I think the case speaks a lot to the fact that we kind of don't really question doctors. We assume doctors know what they're talking about and know what they're doing. And one of the things that Queensland Health said after this was that patients don't really have the opportunity to like know anything about their doctors before they go into the surgery. They don't Google them. Yeah. They don't have a list of their medical history you know, provided to them so they can decide whether or not this is the person that will, you know, take care of them through something that could end their lives. So. And I mean, just on a personal level, especially talking about like feeling comfortable enough to be like, hey, I want to get a second opinion. Like two of my grandparents died because they listened to what their doctor said for all intents and purposes. My grandmother had horrible chest pain and she was repeatedly told over and over again, it's just indigestion. And then she had a severe blockage of the heart and she dropped dead and mm. she died. I mean, doctors are people and they make mistakes. They make mistakes and that's the thing. Like, And it's just you, mistakes with massive as, consequences. As a patient, you have the ability to be like, you know what, I'm just going to check again. Mm-hmm. And same with my grandfather. He had ulcers on his legs getting dressed twice a week going in to see a doctor twice a week to get his legs dressed and you're telling me that you didn't notice them starting to become gangrenous and my grandfather lost both of his legs 
That's fucked. Because of it. Like this is the attitude, especially, and I think it's a generational thing. Like I think we're becoming more aware now that it is okay to get a second opinion. And even lots of doctors recommend it. Yeah. They're like, I don't know everything. Ask somebody else. Yeah. Refer you to a specialist. It's just, oh, God, I I think that's why I've just gotten so upset by all of this just because, like, I feel – it's horrible and it's something like you know you're putting your life and your care into the hands of another person i mean i'm I'm also it's real nasty yeah i'm i've been lucky i've had a couple i've had a couple of surgeries in my life and they've all gone fine but like the vulnerability that you feel because your life and your body is at the hands of other people and like people were wondering why i was freaking out i was having an appendectomy which is standard everyday it's a standard everyday surgery. Mm-hmm. Like it's really fine. But I was freaking out. Like yeah. surgery has risks <sighs> for every person. I mean, they are cutting open your body and removing or editing some part of it. It's yeah. risky. It's risky business for any person. Like, you know, the good Lord did not intend for us to be <laughs> going up in each other's organs doing freaky shit. You know, it's rough. And, you know, doctors, doctors who. Ha- they have so much power they and they so play God. And they have so much responsibility. And the fact that he was arrogant enough mm-hmm. to think that he could keep doing this and that, oh, it's so, like, that's the thing. That's what's killing me is just the arrogance. I was literally like, damn, wish I could bottle that male confidence. Like, all these people telling you, like, you suck at being a surgeon. You and were literally like, a criminal. You know he's like, I'm I the am, best surgeon in the entire world. I don't world. have germs. I don't have germs. You have germs, Dr. Everybody Patel. has germs. You are not exempt just because you have a stethoscope. Ex- in fact, you are less exempt you because you are, are around more germy all the time. Yeah, so that was rough. I have a uh, – one of my greatest fears in life is um, undergoing surgery and waking up during it. Um, and that happened to him. And it happened. Oh, this bit, that doesn't happen. Why would you be scared of that? It does happen. If Dr. Patel is your surgeon, you get your freaking bowel removed when it doesn't need to be. Yeah, researching this case was just an entire process of me gripping onto the nearest available surface, trying not to faint. And I cannot even begin to describe how much I feel like I'm going to be sick right now. I am queasy. I hope everybody else is queasy too. If you're queasy right now, I did a good job. I feel, as I said before, I feel grey. I feel green. You kind of, your eyes, you have like a baggy thing going on, which I don't think I can attribute to your tiredness. Yeah, That that was a really good episode though. And the censorship of the nurse. Oh, fuck that. Fuck that. I have to say, thanks, Zane, for reminding me. Shout out to, to Tony, Tony Hoffman. Hoffman. Over and bitch. over again. Listen to women. What a boss ass bitch. Listen to women. Like, we're not saying, like, it's like. Uh, but the thing that pissed me off is that she went to her line manager, who's also a woman, and she was like, I'm it's sorry, a personality doc- conflict. What was his name, Dr. Kingsman? Keating. Keating. What a fucking idiot literally just stupid literally you have so many people being like this guy is shady look into it do something about it and he's just I mean, like fuck it 87 of his patients died like 87 that- over in two years oh. and he took like five months leave so over like 18 months 87 so- people oh it's so arrogant like i can't he's like we're lucky to have him me, me, me. no you're not you're incredibly unlucky do better do better for the people that you're meant to be looking after they are vulnerable and they need your help i would also just like to say that dr keating and peter leck are still working in the medical field Fuck off. 
Yeah. Uh, Peter Lech moved to Western Australia and he works in some form of administrative something there. I can't remember what doctor. He may have retired, but he worked for Queensland Health for like another 10 or so years after all this went down. So there are no consequences if you're a man. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of Murder in the Land of Oz. Um, a soothing Coke No Sugar will fix you right up if you're feeling a bit sick. <laughs> also, I coerced Fifi the podcast cat to sit on my lap. Yeah, Fifi is sat on. If you're wondering why we didn't go Fifi any points, she's sitting quite placidly on Jess's lap. She's rearranging. There we go. Oh, God. Yeah, that was a really good episode, Ellen. I feel so sick. Um Make sure you're rating and reviewing, telling your friends because who doesn't want to be listening to this stuff, especially on a Monday morning? Oh, my God. Um, so we will be back on track with New South Wales. Yep. In No, we have another episode coming up after this. We it will is- have a bonus episode coming up after this one bonus. and then we'll be back in the land of New South Wales. Hashtag bonus episode. you got to say it like that. Bonus. We'll have another bonus episode. Um, and then we'll be back on track to New South Wales. But we still need submissions for Victoria. Please tell us what you'd like us to do because we want to do it. We'll do whatever you want, really. If you throw coins at us, we'll dance. Also, can we announce what's happening? We're going to be at Supernova. I think this episode will come out after Supernova. Oh, We've been at Supernova. Hope you guys had a great time meeting us at Supernova, which was now in the past. Oops. We can slash in a promo somewhere. Um, We've been to Supernova. It went so well. It went so great. It was so great meeting all of our fans. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening. Come to Supernova next year. We'll probably be there too. (laughs) We'll probably be there as well. Rate, review, tell your friends, and please tell us some uh, Victorian crimes that you would like us to cover. Thank you, please. Goodbye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.